Welcome to Church at the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. We're in Ecclesiastes 3 still this morning, and our passage today is 3, 16 through 22, if you want to turn there now. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time under every... Sorry, for a time for every matter and, un- and every deed is there. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath and there is no advantage for man over beasts, for all is vanity. All go to the same place, all come from the dust and all return to the dust. Who knows what the breath of man, that the breath of man ascends upward and that the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth. I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? This is the word of the Lord. Father God, we just want to thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to be here together. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to what you have to say. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak very clearly to us, that we would leave here different than when we came in, that Jesus would receive all of the glory. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. morning. I'm glad you guys are here. Um, If you're new, welcome. My name is Kevin. I'm the lead pastor of Church at the Well. Um, it has been an interesting week, lots of change going on. I know that there's um, some people that are sick, so be praying for them. And it's 75 degrees outside in November, so I'm not exactly sure what to do with that in New England, but I was telling somebody not, you know, it's, it's weird thinking about like a few Thanksgivings ago, we had the coldest Thanksgiving that we've ever had in recorded history, and now I have no idea what's going to look like at the end of the month, but it's, it's warm. Um, so I hope you'll enjoy the weather. I think Global warming seems to be being good for New England, so I don't know about the rest of the world, but that's kind of funny. Um, We're going to be continuing through our series in Ecclesiastes, and things get interesting. I mean, I think what's interesting about the book of Ecclesiastes when you really break it down and as we're going week by week is there's these moments when we keep reading, and it's almost like Solomon as a pastor is just trying to discourage everyone as much as possible, right? Right? And we kind of made this shift where he finally brings God into the picture and provides the hope that's needed. And here he's basically going to ask two questions that he's also going to answer for us, which is great because he doesn't leave us in the lurch again, right? Um, So years ago, man, when I say years ago, I'm getting old. So this must have been like 15 years ago almost when I was a youth pastor in California, we had this moment that I still remember and still impacts me. So as a youth pastor, we didn't have a lot of money. We had a couple of vehicles. Um, We tended to go through vehicles pretty quickly because we were always using them for student events. And the church that I was a youth pastor at was a large church, lots of students. And so we're constantly transporting people back and forth and to events and so on and so forth. And we had this one day, it was a Saturday, where we invited all the students to come and serve all over the place. Right, So it was in Bakersfield, California, and we'd set up, and hundreds of students were coming in, and we were just sending them all over the city to just do some work projects and be a blessing to the city. And so both of our vehicles were being used, and we get this phone call from uh, an individual that I had been mentoring for a while, and he calls me and he says, hey, we were driving out to the location, and your car blew up. And I'm like, oh, well, that's great. Thanks. Um, We'll come and pick you up. And so we go out to where he's at and 
sure enough, the car's in trouble. And we load all of the students into other vehicles that had met us there and get them out serving. And we come in our huge like suburban that we used to own. It was a beast, it was the tank. And we, Christy calls AAA, the tow truck comes, picks up the car, starts driving the car to the shop. We're going to go to the shop to meet the car there. And in the midst of driving to the shop, our suburban blows up. Um, Christy calls AAA from the suburban and says, hey, we have a problem. We were supposed to go meet the driver and so on. And she's like, oh yeah, we have your record. According to this, the car's already been picked up. And she says, no, we have another car that also needs to be picked up. And the, the AAA driver's like, I've never heard of this before, <laughs> right? And we're like, it's so great. And so we're, we're just, you know, this, this moment when we have so many students serving, there's no vehicles now. We've got two broken down vehicles, no way to get anywhere. The tow truck is coming to pick us up. And Christy and I just look at each other in the front seat of the suburban and just start laughing, like hysterically laughing. And I remember it was probably months later that the individual that was with us, his name was Bill, he recalls this story when he was going through something so difficult. And he said, watching you guys handle that specific circumstance changed everything for me. Because you were in this moment when everything just felt like it should be falling apart. And your attitude was just, hey, God's got this. He's in control. And you just took it lighthearted. But I didn't have the heart to tell him because the Holy Spirit had used that for him and such make an impact that I was going, we were laughing so we didn't cry, right? Have you been there before? Those moments when things are so bad and you're like, it can't, there's no way that something else can happen. And then in the midst of even thinking that, you get the next phone call or something happens where it just keeps seems to get piling on and piling on and you get to a point where you can do nothing but just laugh. And I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that everybody in here, not just me, has had those moments where you go, I don't even know what to do at this point. It's at this point that Solomon's going to take us. I'm learning more and more as I'm getting older that I think true discipleship in Jesus isn't necessarily any kind of head knowledge, though that's important. It's not about how much we know, it's about how well we're applying it in situations. It's not about when we screw up, it's how we handle the situation after we screw up. And we're always gonna mess up. Dirty, rotten sinners living in this incursed world, there's always issues. But how are we handling those situations? And I think, the last thing I really have observed is that others are watching. They watch how we handle circumstances. They watch what our emotions do. They watch how we take tragedy. They watch how we handle moments when everybody else is stressed out. And they observe and they wonder, okay, well, as a Christ follower, are you going to handle things differently than I handle things? Or is it just gonna look like everybody else? And it's in those moments that I think we can almost make the most impact. We think of the cross, it's Jesus' greatest impact moment. It was at 
the most difficult time? Because how did he handle it? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to kind of go through this verse by verse. The first question that Solomon is going to ask here is about justice. We kind of, he's going to get this moment where he's going to kind of look at justice in the world and really question, is there actual justice? Verse 16, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. He's surveying the world. He's trying to give us an observation of what he's seeing. It's an empirical data. He's He's, he's observing and then declaring what he has observed. We're supposed to do this as well, right? Oftentimes, we want to kind of over-spiritualize things. At times, it's just directly right in front of us, and we just look at what's happening, and God has given us brains to calculate and determine the result of the empirical data that's there, and then we respond to that in Christ. And so as he's looking at this, what he's realizing is that there doesn't seem to be much justice in the world. Now, for those of us today, I, this seems obvious, right? I mean, we have just gone through so much pain as a, I mean, throughout the world when it comes to COVID and, and all of the issues that were going on with the racial tension and the political issues that were happening and the lack of justice is evident everywhere right? Like, he makes this observation that even in the places that tout themselves as places of justice, there's still injustice, right? So for us in the United States, that might be a courthouse where you expect that a judge or a jury is going to look at something with just pure empirical data to make a decision. In fact, we have symbols in our country that represent that, Right, the statue of Justicia, who is this woman who is blindfolded and holding scales, is supposed to be the symbol of what our justice system looks like. The blindfold is supposed to be just, I'm not looking at the person, I'm just weighing the situation, and then I'm going to make a decision based upon justice, pure justice, not on who's in front of me or what they look like. But what we've experienced what all of us have experienced at some point is that those scales may be there, but the blindfold's off. And lots of decisions get made based upon an individual's color or socioeconomic background or specific sins that they struggle with. And the weight of justice seems to lean toward one side and, and in doing that, that becomes the form of justice that overall impacts us as a culture, and it leads to greater things of racism and prejudice and whatever. And we all know that. It happens. And it was clearly happening back then as well. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Solomon, we've talked about this, was the wisest man that's ever lived. And oftentimes, what we heard is the stories of people coming from all over the world just to sit and listen to the wisdom that the Lord had given him. There's some crazy stories in the Old Testament about Solomon taking situations and applying wisdom in ways that I never would have thought of. There's a story about an argument between who is actually the mom of a baby, and I'm like, wow, 
I have no idea how to solve this problem. I, I would have no idea. There's no DNA testing back then, right? And he comes up with this crazy idea and he's like, just kill the baby. And one of the moms is like, one of the people claiming to be the mom was like, okay, kill the baby. And the other one's like hysterically crying. And he's like, give the baby to that woman because that's the mother. And I'm like, that's brilliant. He, he understood what justice was supposed to look like. He, he had the creative ability to figure out situations and try to apply it to the best of his ability. But even an individual like Solomon, who was also a dirty, rotten sinner living in a sin-cursed world, struggling, the wisdom that the Lord gave him even provided opportunities for him in his own sin-cursed body not to give great justice all the time. And even him passing that on to other people, you look at, you know, we, we talked last week about oftentimes we'll build something up and then we're gonna have to pass it on to the next generation or the next person. We have no idea if they're gonna be righteous or look at it the same way and it could just fall apart and we know what happens to Solomon's kingdom as soon as it goes to his sons. And if you don't know, you should read your scriptures. It's ugly. The, the justice, the, the wisdom that Solomon had, he didn't even have the ability to pass it on to those that were his sons. So he looks at the world around him and he says, man, it, it just seems like there's always like a catch. Like no matter what's going on, there's somebody in the back who's taking a bribe. There's, there's somebody who has some sort of influence that they shouldn't. There, there seems to be other reasons why decisions are made that doesn't really bound, isn't really bound to justice. And if we're seeing those things in the places where justice is supposed to occur, then is there really any justice at all? Then he moves into the realm of the spiritual and he says, man, even in the places like churches where justice is supposed to be prevalent, there still isn't justice. Why? Because a place like Church at the Well, who it's Jesus's church being led by shepherds who are dirty, rotten sinners and still struggle, will always make mistakes. Always. That's why I'll say you can't, you can't ever put your trust in a specific church or put your trust in a person. We put our trust in everything that we have in Jesus because he's the only one who never fails us. I will fail you at some point. And maybe I have already. I'll do the best that I can by the grace of God to, through the power of the Holy Spirit to do everything that I can to glorify Jesus and help shepherd the church but I'm going to make mistakes. And at times, I'm sure people have left or people have been impacted by what they felt was unjust. To think that any body holds the key to justice is already a trap. We see this throughout history, the church getting involved in things that it shouldn't. We saw it recently. I, I'm, I get sickened to the core. I mean, my heart, when I, I listen to pastors or churches take political stances, where their church actually becomes more known for what they believe in a government function instead of Jesus himself. 
when the church becomes defined by something other than Jesus, we're going backwards. That should be the greatest definition of what the church is. I don't know. People should go, I don't know who these people are or what they believe, and I know they make mistakes. The one thing I do know about them is that they teach the Bible and preach Jesus. There's no justice in the church. So what do we do? I mean, this is the question. The wisest man in the world is looking at the world around him and saying, I don't see justice. And this is that moment where we go, yeah, there is no justice. What do we do? Well, you have a couple of options. You can get really depressed about it. You can stay home. You can watch the news all day and yell at it. You can attempt to raise a banner, join a cause. Or we can lean into the answer that Solomon's going to give and say, even though in the empirical data around me, it doesn't feel like there's justice in the world, there actually is justice in the one who created it all. Move on to verse 17. He said, I, see, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. The answer comes in the gospel. And that's where everything changes. Because in Christ, what we look at is that this moment where Jesus comes and he lives the life that we're supposed to live and can't, and then he is placed on the cross, taking the death that we all deserve. And in doing that, one of the things that we see on the cross is God's perfect justice. We know that in Genesis, at the fall, he said, right, that there would be some hope. In Genesis 3.15, the, the proto-evangelum, the first gospel, that he would send someone to crush the head of the serpent. And as we waited and waited and waited in the fullness of time, like we talked about last week, Jesus, the, the Father sends Jesus to come. And as he's sitting on that cross nailed to it, we see the justice of God because he's fulfilling that which he said has to occur. He's not a God that, that says, you know what, ah, it's just a messed up world, so I'm just going to make changes as we go. He says, no, the wages of sin is death. And it will always be that. There's ramifications for sin. Because we sin against an eternal God, it's eternal ramifications. It's heavy. God doesn't back down. He's unlike me, right? Like, I have these moments where sometimes I know what justice needs to happen. I know what I need to do. I know what punishment needs to occur. And then I look into the eyes of like my daughter who she's loving. And I'm like, this is what I want to do, but I don't do it because I go, she's, she's, she's contrite. She's, she understands. And I just want to hold her. And though our Father will hold us, He still is always just. And what He says will occur, will occur. And what's the proof? Jesus. To what point does a Father have to express and show that He will always be just greater than sending His Son 
to the cross. Why is Jesus on the cross? Because part of it, because God is just. I said somebody has to die for sin, and I meant it. And when we look at the cross, it's this perfect balance between the justice and love of God as Jesus stretched out and says, I love you this much. We're looking at the the ramification of sin, but we're also looking at the, the glorious nature of God's love to say, I'm going to pass this punishment onto you, which allows you to take what Jesus did and not have to suffer that eternal condemnation. And that's unbelievable to think about. We do that through faith. That's the gospel. When we think about justice and we think about what God's willing to do to honor his own justice, then we can also understand that one day, like Solomon said, God will judge. All of the, un, all of the injustice in the world will one day be resolved. All of the injustice. When I, it's, it's interesting. I, I have found that if you've lived in Boston very long and you drive, I never had road rage before I moved here. And now it seems to be getting worse every year. I have learned that stop signs have just, I don't know what has gone on in our, in the East Boston or in the city of Boston, but it was like, I missed the memo that stop signs don't matter anymore. They just, I don't know what happened. It's like collectively, everybody just went, they don't matter, right? And there's moments when I'm like, I mean, I'm, I'm literally driving and I'm, you slam on your brakes because somebody's done something wrong and I'm looking around like, where's the cop? And then sometimes I'll even see the cop over there and he's just waving to everybody, right? Because it seems like every law in Boston is more of a suggestion than a law, right? So where's the justice? But it's good reminders. It's like, man, and I told you last week, then you, you start justifying your own driving behaviors, right? Based upon the driving behaviors of others. I'm like, Chris, they'll be like, why'd you run that stop sign? And I'm like, at this point, if I stop, it's more dangerous than keeping to go, right? Because nobody else is stopping. So we just got to go, we go, 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 right? Everything's go. So you begin to justify your own ability to break laws you want justice on them, you don't want justice on yourself. And that happens all the time, right? We can easily just, the laws that we break or the things that we do don't seem quite as severe as the ones that are done to us or the ones we observe done to other people. And so we'll say, justice, justice, justice. And then when it's us, we say, mercy, 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 right? God's not like that. It's, it's comforting that in the gospel to know that all of the injustice that you as an individual has, have experienced will one day be resolved. So when we look at things that are horrific in our world and we look at a, a lack of justice that's going on, if the gospel wasn't there, if God wasn't a God of justice, then we could fall into this trap of just feeling hopeless. And what do we do? And is it even worth it? But because of the gospel, 
because of what God has done, because of the person of Jesus, because of his sacrifice, because of the seriousness of the ramification of sin, and we watch the Father follow through, we can literally believe that if he's willing to do that to his son, to himself, then he'll hold true. And that provides hope. You know what it provides hope for? For when we're dealing with an injustice in our life and we can look at the Father and say, right now, it is unjust. Right now, I'm being mistreated. However, there's a future where that will never exist because God is good. It allows us to, to help others to say, I know that you're experiencing injustice. I know that you are. This is a very specific incident, but um, we, don't, we don't love to talk about it, but obviously this country has a history of some oppression. Um, years ago, right before COVID hit, right? I feel like everything in my life is now going to be pre or post-COVID. Pre-COVID, um, we ended up in speaking at a church in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, and if you don't know the history of Montgomery, Alabama, you really need to. And there's a place there called the Justice Initiative. And there was a movie actually about it. And I don't remember the name of it. Somebody help me out. Just Mercy. And um, it's basically this lawyer who was looking at all of the individuals, mostly black males, who had been unjustly put in prison for a really long time. And he was going back and looking at their cases and trying to pull them out. And it's unreal. But he put this museum together. And it is, I'll say it's emotional. It's also educational. And I think every single person who lives in the United States should one day go see this. Because you see the brutal injustice that has occurred that we want to put a blindfold on now. It's horrible. I remember just crying the whole time. It's like, great vacation. It's so, so important. The pain that has been experienced by so many in this world, the pain that you yourself experience, we, we have the ability in Christ to say, I know it's unjust right now. I get it. I know the pain, and I can cry with you. And I can try to do my part. But by the grace of God, this world isn't all we have. By the grace of God, I can provide you some hope, though you've experienced injustice, that you know that we're living in a sin-cursed world and sin-cursed bodies, but there is a God who created you and loves you, and one day, he will hold you. And you'll never experience injustice again. And those who brought it they will be judged. Though it doesn't feel that way now, it will happen. 
We take this to the church, and what we realize is that there's passages of Scripture that tell us that even those who believe in Jesus, one day all of the things that we've done that are unjust are going to actually be revealed. That's a scary thought. All the things that we as a church body, all the things that you have done, even as a believer, one day will be screamed from the rooftops. There will nothing, nothing will be hidden. That's intense to think about. But it brings everybody back to that same point. Everybody's sin will be revealed. Every ounce of injustice will be rectified, and we'll have no choice but to stand and look at Jesus and worship him through eternity because it will have fixed everything. That's the hope of Christ. It doesn't eliminate the injustice that's here right now, but do you know what it does do? It provides some hope that maybe you've never experienced before to know that one day it will happen. I think one of the, the keys to this is just processing that there's more to life than what we see, even though it feels like this is it. Solomon doesn't stop there. He, he wants to push us to process the justice of God, but then he moves us on to another question that forces us to celebrate the gospel as well. Verse 18, he said, I said in my heart with regards to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. So all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward or the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. This can be an extremely confusing passage. What this sounds like from first reading, especially if you're not you're taking out of context, is what Solomon is saying is really human beings are are on equal plane in value with the rest of creation. So the dog and the person all the same, but we know that not to be theologically true. We know that man was created in the image of God. We know that there's a special that that it's different. And so what is he processing here? He's, once again, we're looking at empirical data. He's looking at the world around him, and he's realizing that regardless, regardless of how good-looking you are, regardless of how much you've achieved, regardless of how much you fight it, just like the beasts that roam the earth, we too are going back to dust. Which means the most beautiful woman on the planet and the ugliest animal on the planet are all gonna end up as dust in the earth. He's saying it's, it's the same. What he's attempting to do here is he's talked about justice and he says, man, there's no justice on the earth. However, there's justice in, in God. And now he's looking at, man, everything is mortal. Everything dies. Everything just it's gone. It, no matter what we do, it's, it's back to dust. I mean, he's, he's quoting in Genesis, the curse in Genesis chapter three, where he says, you were made from the dust and from dust you will go back. Part of the curse is that we will have to physically die. 
That's not what we were created for. It's what we chose in sin. We will have to go through the ramifications of an earthly death. We have to. But just like everything else, I don't know, this is like the the Lion King moment, right? We can all come together and sing circle of life and, and figure it all out. And it, but it, I mean, it's accurate. From an empirical data and observation, that's exactly what happens. And he's saying, man, this is, this can be depressing as well. Like, how is it that I'm having, I don't know, is anybody have, you know, if you have a pet, okay? I have two dogs. So I have Bella, who is really old and kind of cranky. And then I have Darcy, who is really young and all over the place, right? And I look at both of them, and oftentimes I'm just like, what a life. Like, the old dog can't walk up the stairs anymore, so what do we do? We carry her. Up the stairs you go, right? She doesn't even ask. We just do it. The other dog wants to play all the time, and you can just be sitting there, and you're doing something, and pretty soon you look down, there's a toy on your lap, and she just like Jedi mind tricks you to go, it's time to play, and you'll do it. And I'm thinking, then they sleep, what, 30 hours a day? <laughs> like, what a, what a life. Like, th- this is great. I-, I mean, if I ever come back, I want to come back as a dog, right? Because in, in a really like nice family that walks me and picks up all of my poop. I remember there was a Seinfeld episode like forever ago. Not endorsing Seinfeld, though. It's awesome. Seinfeld's funny, and there was this scene in Seinfeld where it was like Jerry Seinfeld was, he's a comedian, he's looking, he says, man, if there are, like, if there's life outside of Earth and they're actually observing us, they believe dogs rule the world. Because if you see one animal walking in front and the other one walking behind and picking up their messes, who's really in charge? Right? Makes sense. When you look at when you realize that the lazy, playful, simple life of my dogs, stress-free, other than where am I going to nap today? And then you look at my life in comparison and go, man, I'm having to make decisions all the time. Like, we're a mess. I'm constantly hurting people. People are hurting me. There's, there's trouble in the world. The, my dogs have no idea that there's injustice in the world. I, we're having to weigh that out. And you, you compare this and you're like, wow. And then in the end, basically, we both end up as dust. That just seems awful. You're like, man, I mean, I think that's what Solomon's processing. I don't know what kind of dog he had. But he's like, this dog does nothing and it's going to end up like dust just like me. And you're like, so what's the point? What's the point? This is why people get so depressed, right? Because you look at circumstances and you're like, there's no justice in the world. It doesn't seem to matter what I do. I'm going to end up in the same place as the dog that I'm taking care of and that has no stress whatsoever. And so here we go, right? What do I do? And oftentimes people will respond in a way where they just, they go into full depression. It's like, it's it's meaningless, right? And he actually says this. It's vanity of vanities. We're stuck there until we apply the gospel. Once again, 
as he's looking at his own mortality, he has a really interesting response to it. Verse 22, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is a weird transition. For Solomon to say, there's no justice in the world. I'm mortal. I'm going to end up in the exact same place as my dog, dust in the ground. And he says, so this is my conclusion. We need to live our life rejoicing. Rejoicing comes from, the, I mean, joy comes from the world rejoicing, right? You, 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 rejoicing, when you think of rejoicing, you think of celebrating, you think of gratitude, you think of being thankful constantly. How is that possible? How do you contemplate a lack of justice in the world that we see and a lack of immortality that we see and say, the response is, we rejoice. Before we dive into that, let me ask you this. What if, what if, the church, let's talk the universal body of Jesus, the family of God. What if, instead of constantly degrading individuals and looking at the lack of injustice, what if constantly, instead of focusing on the mortality of mankind, what if those who truly knew Jesus around the world actually did what Solomon said? What if our response to all of those issues was to rejoice? What would change? I mean, there would be a greater impact than you can imagine by people who I told you earlier are watching us. They'll go, man, that person's weird, right? That, that's bizarre. What a strange reaction to the stress that we're currently under. It's as if they're living their life in a way that they know something different than I know. It's almost as if there's some kind of hope that's living inside of them that doesn't seem to cause them to respond the same ways that the world is responding. They're, they're, they're living their life in a way that's joy-filled in the midst of hardship, in the midst of understanding that there is no justice and that there is and that we are mortal beings. How, how is this possible? I mean, dream with me for a moment. What would that look like? Okay, let's make it smaller. How would it change your life? Just you. If you're here today and you claim to know Christ, this is possible. This is how it's supposed to look. This is what we're supposed to do. What would it look like in your own life if you took all of the tragedy and all of the issues and all of the injustice and all of the things that have gone on in your life that you hate and instead of responding in kind, responded in gratitude and with rejoicing. What would happen in your own heart? Would it change? Oh, yeah. 
what would your life look like? Different. It would be so different. It's, it's the difference between a life of misery and a life of, I don't even know, not being miserable. Right? Because if, you're, if your weight is constantly revolving around the injustice and mortality that you have, then you're bearing a weight that the Lord never intended you to bear. You're not built for that weight. You're not. And how do I know? Well, we don't have to go to Scripture to see it. We can just look at our own responses. We get sick. We get depressed. We isolate. We pull ourselves from people that can help us. Even as a, even as a Christ follower, there are people, I mean, I've probably done this, I, most depressed I've ever been was during COVID, right? Why? Because I'm not around people. Feeling isolated. Feel like my soul's dying. What would have happened? What would have been different if I had actually rejoiced during that time? I probably would have been a little more productive. Probably would have gotten some things done instead of just moping around in my basement. I, I want you to grasp that what Solomon is trying to push is that when we observe the world around us, it's always going to look the same. You can walk out this door right now and find everything wrong with the world. It's really easy. You can walk out this door right now and pick somebody apart like crazy. It's really simple. It's not hard to be <laughs> an angry, bitter, depressed person. Simple, right? It's simple. It almost feels natural. Hmm. You know what's hard? In faith, living out the life that Jesus has for you in joy. Refusing to allow a sin-cursed world and a sin-cursed body to remove the joy that you've found in Christ. Refusing to let a world that we know cannot be fixed until Jesus comes back dominate everything that we do instead of focusing on the one that has a plan through the process. That the, the one that actually says, in me, by the power of the Spirit and the grace of the Father and the work of the Son, you have the ability to live a joy-filled life that impacts you for good and others for good in the midst of something that cannot be fixed by you. You have that ability. The resurrection of Jesus is so important. You know why? I mean, for a lot of reasons. Theologically amazing. But one of the reasons the resurrection is so important is because what we see is that there is life. Jesus, in that moment, literally, Scripture says that Jesus became sin. He literally, like, if you picture this, on the cross, Jesus had my sin on him, but he also had yours. 
And he also had, I mean, at every sin of every individual who would ever believe in him on him, he literally in that moment through the eyes of God was the most sinful being that would ever exist, though he had no sin. It was as if like, as he's on the cross, I mean, I'm visual, so I picture this, right? It's like the whole world who would believe was lined up with a bucket of their sin, walking up to him on the cross and just tossing it onto him. And he was just getting dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. And that's a really theologically terrible analogy, but you get it. He rose from the dead. Showing that the love of God is more powerful than the sin of the world. Showing that the hope of Jesus is more powerful than all of the injustice that we will ever see. He conquered sin, Satan, and death forever. So let me explain this to you. You don't have to. He's done it. Here's the problem with the church. We think that we're fighting for victory. We're not. We're fighting from victory. It's already been victorious. Our life, our life should represent what it feels like after your team has won. Okay? It's the parade. If you haven't gone to a Boston team parade yet, you've missed out. It's cool. If you're not a Boston fan, then think of the team that you love and imagine them winning the big game and how you feel afterwards and the celebration that goes on in your heart. It's not even us, it's somebody else. We're celebrating what they've done. But that enthusiasm, that joy that you're, you're, you're going through, man, the struggles they went through and the documentaries that they're gonna show and all this pain that everybody went through to produce this win, that was Jesus. He's already done it. You don't have to. You don't work as we're working for victory. We work from a position of already being victorious in Jesus. That produces and changes everything about the way that we respond. It changes everything about the way that we live. It's a mindset change. Stop working for it. Why are you working to achieve something that you can't achieve anyway, but it's already been achieved for you? That's foolishness. We live from the perspective of victory. We know that there's no injustice in the world, but we know that there's justice from God. We know that we're mortal beings and we'll have to experience in each, in death, but we also know that in Christ, we live eternally with him. We know that. So what honestly can, I, I mean, why are we not living from that point? This is where Solomon's getting to. He's realizing that. He's like, I'm looking at our lot and all I'm realizing is because God's there and he's creator and he's just and he's loving. And man, this was, he didn't even know Jesus was coming yet. I mean, he knew the Messiah was coming, but he hadn't come yet. It was harder on him. We actually have seen the victory. We don't have the hope of the victory, which he had. And in the midst of the hope of the victory, he's going, man, I get our lot. We live in a sin-cursed world and sin-cursed bodies. It's hard. 
It's difficult. I respond poorly, but why? There's a God who loves me. There's a Messiah that's coming. Victory is at hand. And we take it to a whole nother level. We're already victorious. If you've accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior through faith, you've, you've literally taken the gift that Jesus has given. You've said, okay, instead of me dying and paying for my sin, I'm gonna accept through faith what Jesus did. In faith, the Bible says that that, that sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus is transferred to us, right? The great exchange happens. You no longer owe a death penalty if you know Jesus. It's been paid for. You have been adopted into the family of God. You are in. You're part of the family. You don't work for it any longer. You don't hope for it any longer. You're in. You're adopted. You're part of God's family. I, so why do we live as if we're not? Why do we live as if there's no hope? Why do we allow the world that we know is messed up impact us to a point where we actually forget whose we are? And so you know what Solomon's solution is? It's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work. Maybe one of the reasons that you've been ineffective in helping people see the truth of Jesus is because what you claim and what you live look different. Come to Jesus, there's lots of joy. Well, you sure don't look joyful. Come to Jesus, it supersedes the issues that go on the world and provides hope for a future that we know is sure because he is just and he is love and he never fails. Yeah, but you don't live that way. It's, there's a disconnect. One of the greatest issues that we hear from our culture about the church is they go, it's just a bunch of hypocrites. And the reality is they're right. We claim one way, live another. I mean, it's hypocritical for them to say that because they do the same thing. But looking at a church perspective, it makes sense. Why are you living as if you're defeated? Why are you living as if there's no hope? Why are you living as if there is no victory. Why are you living as if there was no resurrection? Because there was. The word of Solomon here is encouraging us as believers, as a church, to actually live the joy that Jesus produces. And you go, well, how do I do that? How do I do that? How do I do that? It's a mindset. Joy's a choice. If you know Jesus, you can choose joy. Nobody can steal it. My, oh, one of my biggest pet peeves. Oh, this person stole my joy. I'm like, man, you've given them a lot of power. That's a lot of power. Somebody can steal your joy? Either your joy is rooted in something really weak that can be overpowered by an individual, or you just don't understand what joy is in Christ. Because nobody can steal your joy in Christ. 
Nobody can steal the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection happened. Let's live in it. If you're here today and you have never given your heart, your faith, put your trust in Jesus, you can do that today. Okay, there's, there's not a magical prayer that has to happen. I'm not gonna, it, it's just a transfer of faith. It's taking what you have put your faith in and putting it in Jesus and Jesus alone. It's coming to a place where you realize that no matter what you do and no matter how hard you work, you are never gonna deserve it and you can never achieve it. That's why Jesus came. If you could achieve it, then there was no need for Jesus to come. The whole reason that Jesus came is because we can't achieve it. He has to achieve it for us. Stop working for it. Can't. And you have to come into contact with your own understanding of that. I can't. I'm hopeless. And when you get to that point, do you know what we look for? A savior. And the only savior is Jesus. So you're like, well, what do I do? What do I do? Maybe it's the first time you've ever heard the good, that good news. Talk to somebody. Ask some questions. Turn to the person next to you. Say, do you know Jesus? And if they say yes, say, can we meet for some coffee? I mean, you can come talk to me, but it definitely doesn't have to be me. This room is filled with saints. Those who profess faith in Jesus. Put your faith and trust in him. Here's what I, I love you enough to tell you this. If you don't know Jesus, your end is continued depression, searching for something that you're never going to find. And you're going to constantly be on this cycle. And if what's holding you back is a fear of looking at the body of Christ and going, man, they don't seem to be living any different, then I will be uh, maybe the first to tell you, then forgive us because what we're displaying is wrong. Don't let the failure of the church to live the life of the resurrection of Jesus be more powerful than the resurrection of Jesus in your life. For the church, for those of you who profess Christ, I just want you to process a little bit. Think about this last week. Think about your interactions. Think about your heart. Think about the way that you lived. Think about the decisions that you made. Just process. Because I don't know. I have process on my own. Would your life be defined as living in the midst of the death or the resurrection? Like, you have to answer that question. And if you don't know, be bold enough to ask somebody. Hey, this week, was I living in light of the resurrection? Was my life filled with joy? Was my response in hope? Or did I declare defeat to you? This is what Solomon's begging the church to realize. We are no 
longer slaves to sin. You are no longer slaves to sin-cursed bodies, sin-cursed world. Jesus has cut those chains. You're free. Paul spends a lot of time in his epistles talking about how you're going to use that freedom. Is it going to, is your life just going to look like a hopeless mess? And you, the hard part about freedom in Christ is that he'll allow you to do it. Or is your life going to look like post-resurrection? What needs to change? If you know Christ, the change is not difficult in the aspect of just refocusing on a resurrection life instead of a defeated life. Because you're not defeated. I know bad things happen. I know there's pain. I know that we blow it. I know there's ramifications for the choices that we make. But you are still a part of the family of God. You are still living, breathing in light of the resurrection. You have the freedom and the ability to wake up to handle every situation from the perspective of joy because it is a choice. Choose joy. It will change everything. Father, I just thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that we have in Christ to not be stuck. Lord, I know that as we look at the world, we see the injustices that exist. And Lord, it's really, it's really not far-fetched to say that we're a part of those injustices. And Lord, we do, we do desire to see change, but Lord, we know that that change is only going to come from you. Lord, we're grateful. We're grateful people. Lord, I, I pray that you would forgive us for not living our lives defined by the resurrection, coming from the perspective of victory and constantly focused on defeat. Lord, I pray for any individual in here right now who has never given their life to Jesus. Lord, would you give them the courage and the boldness to ask questions, to have a conversation? Lord, I, I ask that you would remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, that you would give them the the, the true eyes to see, Lord, that, that you would push back the darkness and have your light shine, that they might see your hope. And Lord, for your church, Lord, may this be the moment right here, right now, fully engaged to say, I have forgotten, Lord, that I'm living in light of the resurrection and my life doesn't reflect that. So Lord, right now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by your grace, I will declare the life that you've already given me. Lord, don't let us leave here the same. Fill us with your joy. Help us to be people that rejoice in light of the injustice and the mortality because there is hope in Christ. And Lord, may that hope, may that resurrection life be contagious to those that we meet. And thank you for that privilege, Lord. Help us live it out. So I pray whatever needs to change, Lord, 
whether we need to hit our knees, whether we need to profess, whether we need to talk to somebody, whatever it is, Lord, give us the boldness and the courage to do it in joy. And may we hold on tight to your promises. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.